time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. My job is to serve you. You are my neighbor. And I want to love you. By dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, equipping you to know what the true faith teaches, teaching you how to defend yourself and others against the false things that are being passed off as Christianity today, helping you become adept at shooting wolves. Critical thing to do. Well, we've got uh, a great show lined up for you today. Uh, Oh, man. Got some good listener email. And uh, we're gonna we're also we're gonna go through listener email. We're gonna talk a little bit about uh, Christopher Hitchens. I was uh, listening to a, a radio program and heard a quote from Christopher Hitchens. He's one of the new atheists, and uh, he's uh, <laughs> he's got a quote that I've got to play for you in critique because I think it's very interesting. And this is something that uh, we Christians need to pay close attention to because when, when people talk like him regarding morality. Uh, we need to start challenging him, and we have a there's a great apologetical approach to doing that, and I want to teach you it. Um, today we're, we're also going to play a little game called Name the Pastor. Yeah, that's right, Name the Pastor. And what that's going to basically be doing is I'm going to be reading to you parts of an article from a very popular women's magazine, and uh, one of America's top pastors happens to write for that magazine, and I'm going to... Uh, not tell you who that pastor is. I'm going to read the article to you and see if you can guess who it is. Uh, we'll talk a little bit today about the third article of the Augsburg Confession, and then we're going to do a sermon review uh, from a sermon uh, from Revolution Church in Canton, Georgia. The pastor there is Gary Lamb. And uh, wait till you hear <laughs> this particular sermon. In fact, there's one section of the sermon that you've got to stay tuned for because it's it's crazy. I, you know, this is the least pastorly thing I've heard in a long, long time. So, um, let's, uh, without any further ado, we'll get into today's email. Um, I got an email here from Martha in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, she was cracking up because uh, of my reactions to uh, Pastor David Foster's uh, sermon on Managing your emotional monsters. Managing your emotional monsters. Well, she says, It was hilarious listening to you try to make sense of this preacher. Tennessee might as well be Tasmania when a a Californian like you hears this stuff. I guess maybe there's a cultural disconnect. Is that what you're saying, Martha? (laughs) She says, uh, Google Crown Financial Ministries and Dave Ramsey's talk shows. They play on the radio all over the South and here in Louisville. It's law, biblical principles for finances. These Christian financial gurus teach, as Dave Ramsey says, the borrower is the slave to the lender. All debt is sinful in this economy, and Kentucky was, after all, the site of the Second Great Awakening. And she's still trying to make sense of that. She says, it's law, 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 (laughs) y'all. Yeah, you know, the Bible Belt, I agree, is uh, is all about law. We we get our own version of it out here in... uh, in uh, in California, but uh, we uh, you know we get I think we get Dave Ramsey's show out on some of the local Christian stations, which is one of the reasons why we started Pirate Christian Radio because we wanted to offer people a radio station where they would hear Christ and Him crucified and not get all the financial pop psychology stuff that's being you know that's being passed off as Christian radio nowadays, which is all law law. 
law and then a little bit more law on top of that law. So, um, you know, if, I know you, you may be listening to Fighting for the Faith, the podcast, but there's an entire radio station that we uh, that we broadcast on called Pirate Christian Radio. You can hear it at piratechristianradio.com. And, you know, literally we have a lineup of some of the best Christ-centered preachers that uh, we've been able to find. And these are people that you wouldn't know about because uh, they they aren't conference speakers. They aren't uh, people who who have, you know, mega churches or anything like that. These are just small town guys who faithfully open up God's word and preach Christ and him crucified. They preach the law to nail you to the wall and convict you of your sins. And then they turn around and give you the wonderful words of the gospel. So, um, you know, just wanted to pass that up. But, you know, I agree. I've, I've been in the Bible Belt. I've listened to uh, quite a bit of Christian radio down in the Bible Belt, and it always amazes me that it's it's, it's so law-based. All right, I got an uh, email from a gentleman in uh, Great Britain, and uh, I think his name is Gervais. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but his name is Gervais Nicholas Charmley. Okay, actually, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. He, so he's got three first names and one last name. <laughs> I, I'm sh- my ignorance is showing all over the place at this point. And he, he wrote he wrote in about the uh, the sermon from David Foster as well. He says, "Having listened to your program of October sixth before work yesterday, I work for a British railway company in the evenings. I'd like to offer my two pennies worth, maybe two pence." <laughs> Reform. I am a British Reformed Baptist preacher. He follows the 1689 Confession. And listening to that sermon you reviewed was painful. The style was fundamentalist, but the content was therapeutic pop psychology. The combination was awful. The old-style fundamentalist preaching was law-heavy, and so this man's style was scolding in the extreme like he was telling the congregation off. And the laughter indicated, however, that the congregation really think that they're doing it. That's rubbish. But then, like most modern purpose-driven type ministers, this man is not a legalist, but a neonomian. Neonomian, that means new law, by the way. He says, I'm sure you know what that is, but it's an old error that has lost its, uh, a lot, has a lost, had a loss of popularity in, in Britain in the late 17th century. The idea is that God has made a new law that you, that we can keep. So we're safe now. So maybe you can't keep the old law, but this new law is easier. This is a heresy, of course, but the, but there you are, ravenous wolves indeed. Let me, you know, what's funny there is, uh, Gervais, um, you're, you're saying that he's scolding and he's talking down to his, 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 the people. I find that an interesting comment. And the reason why is because David Foster actually wrote a book called A Renegade's Guide to God. It's called A Renegade's Guide to God. And I want to play for you the audio uh, for the commercial on the internet for uh, <laughs> for David Foster's book. And what's funny is is that he tries to uh, paint himself as somebody who who isn't a shamed base preacher. So uh, let's let's listen. Hey, here's the good news: God loves you just as you are where you are today, not as you ought to be. You and I both know there are too many churches and religious type people who try to use fear and guilt to change you and motivate you. That doesn't work. And it also robs you of the full and meaningful life that you know in your heart God wants you to have. Hey, I'm David Foster, and I'm begging you to forget the rules and all this religious stuff and become a real freed-up renegade for God, one whose joy is immeasurable, whose freedom is limitless, and whose vision and dreams can stretch to the sky. 
want you to read my new book. It's called A Renegade's Guide to God, Finding Life Outside Conventional Christianity. It's my prayer that you're going to discover what it means to be a joy-filled, freed-up follower of Jesus Christ, living the kind of life you know in your heart you were meant to live and God wants you to have. Well, there you have it. That's uh, David Foster promoting his book, A Renegade's Guide to God, and he basically tries to distinguish himself from those uh, shame-based preachers. Yet, Gervais, you're saying that he's... Uh, He's a neonomian, and you thought it was awful because it was it was a, it was new law. And I actually agree with you. I think you're you're spot on, and that's one of the reasons why it was so difficult to listen to and so disgusting. It's not it's not uh, it's not Christianity. It, it's pop psychology that's the new law. And what's interesting here is is I remember doing a Sunday school lesson a few years ago, and I was going back through my notes for this particular class, and uh, the. Jeremiah chapter 23 verses 16 and 17 actually tell us uh, the source of false teaching. This is interesting. This is what the Lord Almighty says. He says, do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, "You, you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. I thought that's an interesting passage, and even though in context and historically speaking, this is Jeremiah speaking to Israel, I think the same applies to false teachers today. They speak visions from their own minds rather than from the mouth of the Lord, and one of my major critiques of David Foster's sermon was that he he wasn't really preaching God's words to us, he was preaching pop psychology thoughts. And so this is kind of, rather than it being a, quote, vision of his own mind, these are just thoughts of his own mind. He wasn't revealing the mind of God to us, he was revealing the mind of himself, the things that he thought were as important, and he's trying to distinguish himself as a new kind of preacher that isn't shame-based, yet what what you came away with, Jarvis, you know, uh, Jervis was that uh, you, you felt that this was neonomian. It was a new law, and I agree with you. So, um, you know, by the way, he writes more, so we'll continue with his email. He wrote a little bit of a more than a little bit of a letter to me. He says, so Gervais continues in his email. He says, I'm presently acting as a guinea pig for a life coach. That that sounds painful. And I can tell you that this David Foster is a lousy life coach as well as a lousy minister. Life coaching is about affirming people, not yelling at them in a scolding tone of voice. Obviously, he's a minister because he's a failed life coach. But after all, what can such a neonomian preaching be but scolding the people into keeping the new law? I would have uh, walked out of such a sermon, but obviously he's tickling lots of ears out there. Yeah, I agree. He says, as a Baptist minister myself, I am offended by David Foster's preaching, uh, falsely so-called. There's no gospel there at all. As for me, but we preach Christ and him crucified is still my motto. My last sermon was about death Was about death from Philippians. To depart and to be with Christ is far better that was the evening the morning uh, that was the evening and the morning sermon was from galatians therefore by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified you know uh, uh Gervais, i listening to uh your you know these sermons that you're preaching just don't sound relevant i mean how are you planning on sustaining yourself i mean you better weave in a sex sermon in here if you want to get some people coming to this i mean talking about sin and death and christ crucified what are you thinking that was sarcasm by the way <laughs> I'm very happy to hear that there's still people out there who preach this stuff 
It's called, this, this is what the Bible teaches. This is the mind of God here that we're dealing with. Anyways, he said, okay, from Galatians. Okay, there were five in the congregation, including a deacon and his wife, all professing Christians, all needing the gospel because the, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wish these lawmongers would read the Bible and see that we are not sanctified by the law, but by faith in Christ. To which I say, Amen. But don't misunderstand me. I don't mean uh, like uh, Keswick teaching that says that you have a crisis moment of faith and then all is well. I mean by our daily living by faith in Christ and our daily faith and repentance. That's right. Very good point there. You know, Christianity is a daily dying to self, a daily denying of self. It's a daily, the Christian life is an entire life of repentance. We don't move really beyond that. And it's a daily, uh, daily repentance and faith in Christ. Now, if only these men would preach this. Well, yeah, if they did, then what would happen is is that their books wouldn't sell and not a lot of people would show up to their churches. He says, a while back, you asked if anyone had ever spoken out against false teaching in a small group. Well, that would be me. When I was a student about seven or eight years ago, one of our student Bible groups was meeting, and we were, I think, going through Isaiah, and an American exchange student, you Americans, polluting our fine country with your heresies. We... <laughs> Yes, we believe <laughs> that I, I laugh, but uh, it's not really funny. Uh, I agree. It used to be that Americans uh, sent out missionaries to all the world to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now our number one religious export is all of our heresies. I mean, in the in the, in the real gospels barely preached at all. Anyways, he says, uh, we, uh, yeah, we gave you the Puritans. You gave us Moody and, and Sankey and Rick Warren. We want a refund. <laughs> <sighs> oh, if only. Okay, anyway, it says, uh, an American exchange student brought up the carnal Christian teaching. At w- I at once broke every rule of affirming small groups and declared that she was wrong, and this is unbiblical and dangerous because it says that Jesus will save you uh, and let you go on living just as you were before. You don't have to repent. Q looks of utter horror. Time has only strengthened my aversion to this heresy. A.W. Tozer called it a heresy, so why can't I? As to Patricia King, I wish I'd been there. It was obvious that the bar was open and she'd had far too much of the falling down water. Had I been there and had the courage to do it, I'd have stood up and said words to the effect of, Madam, I can see that the bar is open, but do you really think that you should have gone there so early in the morning? I love the Monday morning quarterbacking. It's I I have delusions like this myself. Uh, she sounded exactly like a drunk lady on my bus home <laughs> last night. Maybe it's drunkenness in the spirit, but was it gin or vodka? I think that's the spirits that the, that were at work here. Anyway, in the name of our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from Great Britain. Oh man. <sighs> Got another email here from Philip. Not sure where Philip's from. He didn't tell me where he's from, but he, here's what he says. He says, hey, brother Chris, I'm thankful for your podcast, and I'm answering one of your challenges. Not sure how much you want to know, but we've been uh, forced to leave three churches in three years for confronting leadership about some heretical doctrines being brought in. Yeah, that sounds about right for uh, American churches. You know, the the challenge I had put out there was anybody, you know, has anyone out there confronted you know, anybody teaching false doctrine, specifically in a small group. You know, my challenge to you guys is if you are in a small group and somebody teaches something that's or says something that's heretical, don't sit there and go, oh, wow, 
yeah, God must be speaking to you. Uh, your, your answer is, uh, no, that's not what God's word teaches. And what you just said is heresy. And I want to see, uh, what kind of, uh, responses you guys are getting to that. So, uh, Philip writes, and he, he didn't do this in a small group. He actually challenged the pastors. Listen to this. He, so he, he, they, he, <laughs> he was forced to leave three churches in the last three years for confronting leadership about some heretical doctrines being taught. The last one was just last week. When the pastor found out that I was anti-emergent, a rumor was started about me teaching some stupid heresy in Sunday school. Uh, isn't that great? You, you're anti-emergent. You stand on biblical on what the Bible teaches regarding the errors you know that are being taught in the emergent church, and you confront those errors. And what happens? They start a rumor about you and gossip about you, saying that you're the one who's teaching heresy. That's weird. So when I confronted the pastor on it and let him know that I had three articles defending my position and proving the accusations false, he accused me of being unteachable and pointed me to the door. So you, so Philip actually, con, you know, he was confronting the errors of the emergent church. Somebody start, started a rumor about him that he was preaching heresy. He had proof that he wasn't preaching heresy and teaching heresy and uh, disprove the false accusations, and then he was accused of not being teachable. <sighs> not being teachable. You know, I've been accused of that myself. And what not being teachable is code language for um, we need you to be more flexible and open-minded and not be so hard-headed about the truth. You know, you you got to be more bending and, and, and think that there's many different possible, possible interpretations when it comes to truth. But that's not how God's word works. So he says, um, what, so when I confronted him, okay, the, uh, he accused me of being unteachable and pointed me to the door. I wanted to, try, I wanted to try hard and reason with him, hoping that he would see the light. And he told me plainly, this is how he was, and he would not change, and that I could either take it or leave it. But remember, he accused me of being unteachable. So you, you confront the guy with the truth, and he says, nope, I'm not going to change. And yet, you're the one being accused of being unteachable. Anyway, he says that his pastor loves point uh, loves anything purpose driven or Dobson, and we wondered why the old youth pastor was leaving when we joined. Well, now we have met the replacements we know. Keep it up as we are back to home churching. The funny thing is, I'm also a chaplain for the St. Andrew Society. I use it as another group to evangelize, and I get better at interaction than at churches. Yeah, um, purpose driven church. Don't expect any love for the truth there. Absolutely not. All right, so uh, that's our email for the day. Good emails, guys. Keep them coming. If you like to email me, uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. What I want to do now is play for you a little piece of audio from uh, Christopher Hitchens. He's one of these new atheists. These guys are, you know, basically going around saying that all faith, all religion is dangerous. And ever since 9-11, uh, you know, it, it's this complete rejection of all religions that anybody who believe, has any kind of faith is, um, you know, basically uh, genetically mutant, uh, not capable of thinking, and is a threat to the planet. And uh, this is Hitching, Hitchens waxing eloquent about... Uh, the idea of the vicarious atonement. And I want you to listen carefully because he says that the, the idea that Christ died for your sins is an immoral doctrine. Immoral. And uh, rather than responding to it now, I want to play it for you. And then uh, I want to show you as Christians, how do we combat something like this? Because this particular, um, this particular 
attack against Christianity and religion as a whole is really easy to defeat, and I'll show you how it's done. So here's, uh, without any further ado, here's Christopher Hitchens waxing eloquent about how immoral the idea that Christ died for your sins is. Is it moral to believe that your sins, yours and mine, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, can be forgiven by the punishment of another person? Is it ethical to believe that? I would submit that the doctrine of vicarious redemption by human sacrifice is utterly immoral. I might, if I wished, if I knew any of you, you were my friends, or even if I didn't know you, but I just loved the idea of you. Compulsory love is another sickly element of Christianity, by the way. But suppose, I could say, look, you're in debt, I've just made a lot of money out of a God-bashing book. I'll pay your debts for you. Maybe you'll pay me back someday, but for now I can get you out of trouble. I could say, if I really loved someone who'd been sentenced to prison, if I could find a way of saying I'd serve your sentence, I'd try and do it. I could do what Sidney Carton does in A Tale of Two Cities, if you like. I'm very unlikely to do this unless you've been incredibly sweet to me. I'll take your place on the scaffold. But I can't take away your responsibilities. I can't forgive what you did. I can't say you didn't do it. I can't make you washed clean. The name for that in primitive Middle Eastern society was, was scapegoating. You pile the sins of the tribe on a goat, you drive that goat into the desert to die of thirst and hunger, and you think you've taken away the sins of the tribe. A positively immoral doctrine that abolishes the concept of personal responsibility on which all ethics and all morality must depend. Now that is an interesting charge. Interesting charge that the idea that Christ died for your sins, or that, uh, how did he put it, human sacrifice can atone for your sins, the vicarious atonement, is immoral. Now, I want to point something out here. Hitchens is an atheist, and uh, which means that he emphatically denies the existence of God. In fact, he says that God can't exist. He, I mean, he's so emphatic about it that God, not only does he not exist, he says God can't exist. And so he's making a moral judgment about the doctrine of the atonement. Now, I said this is actually really easy to defeat, and uh, let me let me refer you to a book that you can go to where you can learn more about this particular argument, and that is in the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I don't I don't know if you're aware of this, but the the first couple of books within the book, the those three books in the book Mere Christianity, the first couple of books are actually take you know lectures that uh, C.S. Lewis gave. On BBC Radio during World War II, he was friends with uh, with Churchill, and Churchill asked him, you know, to go on to the air, and you know, it, it would be a, it's an incredible morale booster that he wanted to, you know, that he thought the Jack, that's what his friends called Lewis, they called him Jack, would uh, would do for the country, and so the the first two books within the book Mere Christianity are from those lectures, and Lewis himself points something out, and that is is that. Um, all of us make uh, you know make references to this uh, this law that we're all supposed to be keeping, and we say to people that what they've done is wrong or immoral. But the question is, where do these people? Where do we all get this idea of right and wrong that we are constantly referring to? That we're constantly making reference to? Here's Christopher Hitchens making a reference to. Uh, some kind of a uh, moral ethic that apparently the doctrine of the atonement breaks. But my question for Hitchens is, 
where does he get the idea that this is immoral? If we say something is immoral, we're saying that it is truly evil and that it is truly wrong. Now, if it's truly evil and truly wrong, my question is by whose standard are we judging that to be right or wrong? Is it just Hitchens' opinion? Is it just Hitchens' um, idea or theory? Um, you know, if it's just his opinion or a theory that he's working from, then how is all of humanity bound by this that he can make such an emphatic claim that uh, that this is immoral? Atheists have a problem here. And what I do with atheists or people who, who are agnostics, you know, I'll ask them questions like, do you believe in right or wrong? And they'll say, oh, yeah, I believe in right and wrong. And I'll say, well, do you believe that what Hitler did was wrong? Was, that, was Hitler's extermination of six million people, mostly Jews, during the Holocaust in World War II, was that really evil? Was it truly immoral? Was it truly wrong? And nine times out of ten, atheists will tell me, oh yes, it was immoral, it was evil, and it was wrong. And then my next question is, okay, if you think it's immoral, and you think it's wrong, and you think it's truly evil, by what standard did you make that assessment? And they'll generally look at me, well, everybody agrees that that's immoral or wrong. And I'll say, well, no. See, at the time that the Germans were doing that, not everybody believed that what they were doing was immoral or wrong. In fact, Hitler and his gang of Nazis believed that what they were doing was right. They think they were doing a moral thing by engaging in ethnic cleansing, if you would. Getting rid of Jews and gypsies and Jehovah's Witnesses and, and getting rid of people who were born with genetic problems. You see, they thought they were doing the world a favor. They believed that what they were doing was right. So you have their opinion versus your opinion that it was evil. So how do I know with certainty whether or not Hitler's killing of six million people was wrong? And they'll say, well, it, 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 everybody knows that it is. And I'll say, well, basically what you're telling me is, is that we're going to decide what's moral or immoral based upon what a majority of people thinks. So if 51% of the population believes that killing people is wrong, then that's evil. But if something changes in the society where 51% of the people believe that it's okay to kill people, uh, other people that they don't like or they're different than them or ethnically different than them, then, then it becomes right. If you don't have an objective moral standard that you can appeal to that's outside of human nature, then you don't have a real concept. You don't have a, a real objective way of determining what is right or wrong, what is moral or immoral. So my question for Hitchens here is, is that he says that this doctrine of the atonement is immoral. Well, that's an interesting claim. By whose standard is it immoral? Is it just your opinion, Christopher Hitchens, that it's immoral? Well, if that's the case, then that's just your personal set of morals, and I'm not bound by them whatsoever. 
In fact, I would challenge that and say that's just mere speculation in, a, in your opinion. Since when did your opinion become binding on humanity? You see the issue? In fact, Christians are able to say we know what is right and what is wrong. We can say that murdering somebody is truly evil and is truly sinful, not because we feel that's the case or because our society says that's the case, but because God says that it's immoral. God says that it's wrong and evil and sinful to murder people. Any people. Murder whatsoever is evil. And so we have an objective third party that we appeal to who is higher than us and is higher than any human society. In fact, if you're familiar with the Nuremberg trials, the uh, the the Nazi uh, war crimes trials that took place in Nuremberg, Germany, the uh, the Germans, the Nazis there basically made the case that the only reason why they were being put on trial is because the Americans won the war and that they really didn't do anything wrong. They just did what they were told. And so if that's the case, did they really commit war crimes? Did they really do anything wrong or they are they just guilty of offending American sensibilities? Well, if they were just guilty of offending American sensibilities, then they didn't do anything wrong. But during the course of that trial, what was brought up is that it's not that, you know, it has nothing to do with what Americans think or what the American, you know, country is trying to inflict on the uh, Germans, but that the Germans and the Nazis had actually committed crimes against God and humanity. And it was God who says that what they did was wrong. And so we have to, if, if you're going to say something's moral or immoral, you have to have a standard by which you're judging that thing to be moral. And if it's nothing more than your opinion or your society's opinion, then that's not a big enough standard. It's not a, it's not a binding standard. And then if that's the case, there's no such thing as evil or wrong or bad or good. It's just a matter of what's expedient or what's better for your particular nation or culture. And good and evil isn't a hard and fast rule. It's something that's really fluid based upon person to person and society to society. And if we base what's right and wrong on that, well, then we've got a problem. Because there really then is no such thing as anything that's immoral or wrong or evil. We could say it's distasteful. We don't like it. We don't think it's efficacious. It's not necessarily the best thing for our society, but calling it immoral or wrong, that's too much of a stretch. So Hitchens has a problem here. And all atheists do. There's no way that they can truly come up with a standard by which they can judge right or wrong, good or evil, that's any higher than their own opinion or society's opinion. In, in other words, there's no such thing as a as real evil in the atheist way of thinking. And it's a good thing for you guys to keep that in mind. And next time you're talking with an atheist or somebody who doesn't believe in God, work with them on this. You know, where do they get their idea of right and wrong? Do they really believe that what Hitler did was wrong? Based upon what standard? That's a great conundrum to put an atheist in. And I wanted to play that for you because I thought it was a good one to bring up. Anyway, so we're going to go into our first break here. And uh, we'll be right back. If you would like to email me, you can do so at uh, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Email me about uh, any of our sermon reviews, stuff that I've mentioned. If you want to talk about how toking the Holy Ghost and taking bong hits out the baby Jesus is something that's been edifying in your life, 
please email me. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, and we'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus flock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. Available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com or the big picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. Welcome back to Fighting for the Faith. I'm Chris Rosebro, and we are in the middle of a fun show today. A little bit of loose ends, some good emails. We're talking about Christopher Hitchens and where does he get his idea of right and wrong and morals? If you can't get it from God, it's just his opinion. And who is he to say that uh, what we believe is right or wrong or immoral? All right, real quick, we're going to play a little game here. It's called Name the Author or Name That Pastor. I'm going to be reading to you an article from a popular ladies' journal, magazine, if you would. This is from a couple of years ago. And see if you can name the pastor here. I'm not going to tell you who it is because uh, I want to see if, if you guys can figure this out. All right. The name of the article is <clears throat> Learn to Love Yourself. Learn to Love Yourself. Subtitle, Self-Esteem Still Wobbly After All These Years? Then these five simple truths will show you that you don't need to be perfect to be priceless. 
Okay, let's read. It's story time. Carnival funhouses have distorted mirrors that can make us appear taller, fatter, or shorter than we really are. But this doesn't bother us because we know we're getting an inaccurate picture of ourselves. It's just a bit of harmless fun. What's not fun is the fact that many of us look at ourselves through a different kind of distorted mirror. We let other people in our lives, from parents and siblings to friends and coworkers, create a reflection of who we are. But it's rarely accurate. To truly love yourself, you need to know the five truths that form the basis of a healthy self-image. <laughs> now, understand, this is written by a very, very popular Christian pastor. And he's telling us that we need to learn to love ourselves. Hmm. Now, my question for you is, biblically, is loving ourselves the problem or is loving ourselves the solution? Think about it. So here's point number one from this pastor. He says, first is to accept yourself. Don't chase after other people's approval. Too much of what we do, say, buy, or wear is motivated, motivated by our deep desire to be accepted by others. God accepts us unconditionally. And in his view, we are all precious and priceless. Focus on this and you will not waste any time and effort trying to be someone that you're not. Okay. Question, pastor, this mysterious, unnamed pastor. Um, what if the people who don't approve of us are not approving of sinful behavior that we're engaging in? Where's repentance in this? This is a repentanceless Christianity that this pastor is promoting. And by the way, this is this is written to a secular audience. Don't you think that a Christian pastor writing to a secular audience might, might just consider teaching what the Bible teaches and letting people know in this particular ladies magazine, women's magazine, that the problem is, the problem is, is that they love themselves too much. I mean, let me look at, here are some of the names of some other articles in this ladies magazine. Supersize your happiness. Five tips for a secure financial future. How to fake flawless skin. Lose weight, boost energy, a week of easy, healthy meals. Women and heart attacks, the surprising risks and newest tests. Uh-huh. Isn't the problem that we love ourselves too much? I mean, the people reading this and picking this up are all about... Uh, really about themselves and you're just affirming this pastor point number two love yourself the mountains and the hills may crumble but my love for you will never end says the lord god is not fickle and he does not have grouchy days i asked my wife when was the first time you remember really feeling loved by god she said it was more than 25 years ago when our marriage was falling apart and we decided to get counseling after we got home from a particular painful session, my wife lay down on our bed in the dark, in the dark, praying. In that moment of deep distress and self-doubt, she focused on God and was overwhelmed with the feeling that God really does love me without strings attached. It was a breakthrough to freedom for her and our marriage. Point number three, be true to yourself. Accept and enjoy your shape. And by that, I'm talking about far more than your con the contours of your physical body. Although you should rejoice in those two, 
I get to know get to know yourself, make a list of your abilities, and be as honest as you can. Ask friends for their input too. Then consider your your heart. What you love to do as well as the strengths and weaknesses of your personality. Don't deny your weaknesses. We all have a bundle of them. Be content with them. Forgive yourself. This is point number four. One, two, three. Yep. Point number four. Forgive yourself. Now, I just got to stop right there. Forgive yourself? Forgive yourself. Do you really think that forgiving yourself is the Christian message? And Jesus died so that you might forgive yourself. Forgive. What does that mean? How can I forgive myself? If I'm truly guilty, I mean, and I stand before an angry God who's prepared to judge me and send me into hell, am I to say, hey, 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 wait a second there, God. I forgave myself for this. That sin long ago. Is God supposed to go, oh, well, you get it. Yeah. Oh, wow. I, I was thinking I was going to have to send you to hell there for a minute. But now that you've forgiven yourself, you're completely off the hook. Is that the Christian message? Uh, answer, no. So his point number four is forgive yourself. Forgive yourself. God doesn't expect perfection. Well, that's funny. Uh, Jesus said, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Sounds like Jesus expected perfection. By the way, that's the law. It's designed to show you your sin. But see, he's not preaching Christ at this point at all. And he's saying something that's not true about God. God doesn't expect perfection, but he does insist on honesty. Huh? When I honestly admit my errors and ask forgiveness in faith, he doesn't hold a grudge, doesn't get even, it doesn't get even, doesn't bring it up again. We should practice such a forgiving attitude with ourselves. And the last of the five points here for learning to love yourself is believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Are we saved by believing in ourselves or by believing in Christ? Maybe I'm just being too narrow-minded. Okay, believe in yourself. I talk with many successful women who are plagued by a gnawing sense of insecurity and feelings of incompetence. What causes that? It's because they are still listening to old tapes from their past and acting on statements made years ago that weren't true, even then. How do you reverse this? Start affirming the truth about yourself. The truth is, God has created you with talents and abilities and personality and background in a combination that is uniquely you. It's your choice. You can believe what others say about you, or you can believe in yourself as God does. Who says you are truly acceptable, lovable, valuable, and capable? Wow. <sighs> All right, so who wrote it? Send me your emails. Let me know who you think wrote that article. Learn to love yourself. Anything there about sin? Anything there about repentance? Anything of there about believing and trusting in Christ? No. Instead, it was about believing in yourself, forgiving yourself, and yourself, and yourself. And this was a supposedly an outreach article written by a very popular pastor. Now, there was one thing in there that should have tipped you off as to who this is, but would love to get your input. Who do you think wrote that article? Email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And when you email me, don't just say, I think it was so-and-so. Say it was so-and-so and give me the reason why. And if, uh, if <laughs> the best email there, we will send you a, uh, a, a T-shirt, a Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt as soon as they come in. They're coming in very shortly now. 
Thank God we're finally to that point. So send me a pirate. We'll send you a pirate Christian radio T-shirt to the person who not only gets it right but gives us the best reason for why they think it was that particular pastor. Now I'll give creativity points to the person who gets it wrong and gives me a reason why they think it's a, a, diff, the past, a pastor who's not correct. But would love for you to tell me who you think wrote that article on learning to love yourself. Yeah, the, a Christian pastor teaching learning to love yourself. All right, switching gears here. All right, we've been working our way through the Augsburg Confession. The next section of this is the, article number three is huge. And there's no way to cover it in just one big sweeping event. So I'm going to read it for you today. And uh, we'll talk about one particular point of it. And then you know, we'll, we'll start unpacking different pieces of the Augsburg Confession here uh, you know, to help you guys with the basics of Christianity. That's what I believe the Augsburg Confession is. It's a basic outline of the correct interpretation of the major doctrines of Christianity. Now, if the Augsburg Confession contradicts Scripture, the Augsburg Confession is wrong. I understand that. So this is, you know, I'm not reading to you scripture in that sense, but I do believe through my careful study of God's word that the Augsburg Confession gives a correct interpretation and explanation of what the Bible teaches. Article number three in the Augsburg Confession concerns Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. Let me read this for you. It says, likewise, it is taught among us that God the Son became a human being, born of the pure Virgin Mary, not the Immaculate Virgin Mary, and that the two natures, the divine and the human nature, are so inseparably, inseparably united in one person that there is only one Christ. He is true God and true human being who truly was born, suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried in order to be a sacrifice not only for original sin, but also for all other sins and to conciliate God's wrath. Moreover, that same Jesus Christ descended into hell, truly rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, and is sitting at the right hand of God in order to rule and reign forever over all creatures, so that through the Holy Spirit he may make holy, purify, strengthen, and comfort all who believe in him, not themselves, believe in him, also distribute to them life and various gifts and benefits, and shield and protect them against the devil and sin. And finally, the same Lord Jesus Christ will come in full view of all to judge the living and the dead according to the Apostles' Creed. Rejected all, are all heresies that are opposed to this article. There is a lot going on in article number three of the Augsburg Confession, so much so that um, literally we're going to have to take this apart and you know talk about what's going on here. And what we're going to focus on just a little bit today, as far as our teaching is concerned, before we get into our sermon review from Gary Lamb's Revolution Church, the name of that sermon, by the way, is, is All In. It's a gambling theme. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, Jesus Christ as far as who he is. Okay, it's, it's important to understand, and I've talked about this a little bit last week when we talked about the Trinity, and that is, is that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Okay, and he's not God the Father in human flesh, and he's not God the Holy Spirit in human flesh. He's God the Son in human flesh. Okay, and um, what's also important here is that when we talk about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is unique in the sense that um, that he has two natures. Okay, one is the human nature, and the other is his divine nature. But that doesn't mean that there's two Jesuses or there's two Christs, one human Christ and one divine Christ. And the best analogy that I can bring to bear here is the fact that uh, 
is that we don't, uh, you know, we're not two people yet. We are composed of, of body and spirit. All right. That's pretty straightforward, uh, you know, thinking here. And what is death? Death is a separation. It's a ripping apart of body and spirit. But uh, so that you know the biblical basis for the two natures in Christ, let me give you just a clear passage of Scripture here. And it's found in Romans chapter 1. And uh, this supports this teaching this way. It says this. Um, it begins with Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So there, this is probably one of the clearest passages that, that touches on Jesus' two natures. Now, believe it or not, there's different heresies, if you want to call them that, but different opinions regarding how Jesus's two natures work. One is the Nestorian view, and the Nestorian view basically separates the two natures so far from each other that um, there, there seems to be no communication between the two. Um, you know, it, it's almost as if it's just Jesus, you know, Jesus the Christ on the one hand, and it splits him up in, in such a way that the, there's no, uh, no, there's really no communication between the two natures. The second view is uh, is is a one a view called the Eutychian view, which is kind of this idea that it, it, the things are so blended up that you can't distinguish between one or the other. Now, clearly, Scripture teaches that Christ has two natures, but we have to think of those two natures the way we think about our own lives. We have a spiritual aspect and we have a physical aspect, and we're, we're a, a human being is is not cannot be reduced down into these component parts if you were to take them apart then what happens is is that he ceases to live okay the so we have a spiritual aspect and we have a physical aspect and they are they are uniquely combined together so that um you know to rip them apart is what causes death so you, you can't you don't say that my spiritual aspect is is really divine and true and holy and then and then my flesh is you know that that all matter is evil that's kind of a dualistic way of looking at things but you have to understand that uh you know you are you <laughs> and there's not two of you or three of you there's one of you one of you and so a good analogy here is re regarding our body is that you know our body is not is not our spleen or our heart or our liver but our liver and heart and spleen make up what what is composed of our body these are the component parts and put together as a whole we have a human body in the same way um when we talk about Christ even though he has a divine nature and a human nature they're uniquely combined together and there's not two Christ there's only one so you don't rip them apart. And this and God the Son is unique in that sense. Now, uh, we'll come back and we'll talk more about this because there's a lot of things that we can talk about. The fact that Jesus is true God, okay? And that he died not just for original sin, but that he died for all sin. This is a critical difference. What was Jesus doing on the cross? What was he doing there? Was he just setting an example? What was, what was, what was the purposes of, of him being on the cross? We'll come back, and we're going to cover this topic more in depth. So stay tuned for future editions of Fighting for the Faith as we discuss the third article of the Augsburg Confession. 
and that has to do with God the Son and the things that he's accomplished. And you'll notice here in the Augsburg Confession, Article 3 really sounds a lot like the Apostles' Creed. And the reason why it sounds like the Apostles' Creed is because much of it's lifted from there um, and is an affirmation of what's taught in the Apostles' Creed. So we'll go through this kind of piece by piece. All right, moving on. The rest of the program, the remainder of the program, we're going to be doing a sermon review from... uh, (laughs) Revolution Church in Canton, Georgia. Revolution Church. Got to stop there for a second. Revolution. Is that an appropriate name for a church? Revolution? What are we revolting against? Well, I mean, is I think this is an appropriate um, name for Revolution Church concerning Gary Lamb. What you're going to hear tonight, today, wow. Um, this definitely falls into the category of rebellion, and it fits with the theme of revolution. They recently did a, ch- a sermon series called All In, and uh, they were <laughs> delving into the spiritual principles that you can learn from gambling and from poker. Yeah, I'm not making that up. <laughs> I'll put a link to I, I, this is featured in the Museum of Idolatry under the Abominations Wing, and I'll I'll put a link up to it at FightingForTheFaith.com so that you can see this. Uh, the uh, the headline reads: Sin, "Sin City Comes to Church," and they literally the, this is a church that meets in a movie theater. This is one of those churches that you know Monday through Saturday exists in a trailer, and then Sunday morning they they set up church in a uh, in a movie theater in, there in Canton, Georgia. And I've I've had the privilege of meeting Gary Lamb and. Um, Met him at the Evolve conference, and um, boy, you gotta you gotta ask the question: Why would you want your church to be decked out and look like Las Vegas? As part of their as part of the service, they actually had an Elvis impersonator get up and uh, sing a quote worship song. Makes perfect sense to me. So they brought Las Vegas into uh, into church. And uh, actually preached a sermon called All In. All In. And uh, see if this makes any sense to you, if this even remotely sounds like Christianity. And uh, without any further ado... Oh yeah, i got to get that Vegas music in there. Hang on, fast forward here. Here we go. Good morning! Mm, that sucked. <laughs> what? <laughs> this pastor just said that their what they just said sucked. Is this a pro- appropriate for a pastor? I just I just asked the question. I don't know. Maybe it's okay for pastors to say that sucked in a church service. I mean, I thought pastors were supposed to be examples to us in in Christ of holiness and self-control and things like that. You know, wait till we get farther into the sermon. There's something you've got to hear. Stay with us because I guarantee you, you've never heard anything as blasphemous as t- and terrible as what you're going to hear towards the tail end of this sermon. I know it's fall break. Everybody's a little chilled out. Tennis is a little bit low. You're in, you're in vacation mode if you got kids, but you got to come a little bit stronger than that. I was worried, man. Last night, I'm like, it's fall break. I hate this school calendar because, you know, every six weeks you're going to lose momentum. 
And I was like, man, is anybody even going to show up tomorrow? I said, man, it's going to be crazy. And then, then I get the call about midnight and Tim and Courtney are on the way to the hospital to spit that kid out, man. And I'm like, oh, crap. And he's like, no, Evan knows the songs. Don't worry about it. He, he, just, <laughs> he just said, crap. This is a pastor. He just said, crap. Oh, man. About Evan did a good job, didn't he? So I'm freaking out, man. Is anybody going to show up? Evan's leading worship. And I'm thinking, man, this is going to be a rough day. And then to make matters worse, first service, this chick comes in with a newspaper. Like she just knew the service was going to suck so bad. There he goes again. Crap and suck so far. Now she had to open up the news and see the Georgia Tech loss last night. You know what I mean? It's just like, give me a break. I just like, this is not going to be a good day, but it was an awesome service. I'm so glad you're here. But you guys got to get a little more rad. Let's try it one more time. Good morning. What are you talking about, man? Hey, we're in the second week of a series we've been calling All In and kind of talking about the metaphors between life and poker. Man, I love me some poker. (laughs) You got to be kidding me. Oh, man. Sorry. Sorry. This is appropriate material for a a Christian sermon exploring the metaphors between life and poker. I mean, I'm sure this will draw people. Wow, this is so relevant. (sighs) But is it Christianity? Is he really going to be telling us what God's word teaches? Again, you got to stay tuned because what you're going to hear towards the tail end of this review is probably one of the most blasphemous and terrible things you've ever heard any pastor say. And we're already close to that right now. Poker. I mean, it, it, you can't help but live in today's society and not know what's going on with poker, man. It's, it's everywhere. It's all over the TV. You can't flip through any of the channels without seeing something that has to do with poker, man. There's celebrity poker tournaments. Man, the World Series of Poker is on ESPN now. They had the countdown to that poker tournament, man. People getting excited about what's going on. And, man, I love to watch it. And I've been asking myself lately, knowing we're doing this, show, like, man, what is it I love about Because let's just be honest, it's kind of boring. A bunch of guys sitting around a table. Sunglasses on, we don't read their eyes. No trash talking. I don't even play poker. I'm too ADD for that. I'd be wanting to dance on naked on the table or something if I was playing. I'd be so bored. And that- oh, please don't. I cannot. Oh, oh, the mental's there. And that'd make everybody puke. I'd probably win then. But, uh, but I love to watch it. And like I said, I, I think I love it because it, it parallels life so much. Last week we talked about what to do when life deals you a bad hand. If you weren't here, man, you need to grab that CD out in the lobby. They're free out there. And, I say it was just kind of those messages, and everybody that's played poker has been dealt that bad hand. And, that, and that's kind of a fun part about poker, man, because I love to watch how people respond to adversity. But I'm going to tell you about my favorite part of poker, my favorite part of Texas Hold'em, is when that dude picks up his cards and he flips them over and doesn't have a bad hand. He's got a great hand. And he knows, man, that he's got the hand that's going to win him everything. And they go around the table and they're placing their bets, Man, I just get excited every time I see the hand reach back and the hand open up because I know, man, he's opening that hand because he's got a lot of chips to slide in. And he slides them all to the middle of the table. And he says, all in. At that point in time in that match, you know that guy just put everything he had on the table. You know that he was willing to risk everything. He He was willing to lose everything for the possibility of gaining everything. And you know, the minute he pushes those chips in, you know that his heart's pounding. 
You know that he's sweating. You know that he's nervous. Because that joker knows, man, there is no turning back. I'm all in. Same way with life. There comes that point in time in our life where each and every one of us has to decide, are we going to play it safe? Are we going to go through the motions? Are we going to keep doing what we've been doing in the process, keep getting what we've been getting? Are we going to push all our chips to the middle of the table and we're going to go all in with everything that is in us, with everything that we are, with everything that counts? And the fact of the matter is, sadly, very few of us in life will ever push our chips to the center of the table and go all in. Um, where does the Bible tell us to do that, Pastor Lamb? I, am I supposed to go and just live a life of risky living? You know, betting everything all the time, going all in? Can you give me an example? I mean, what should I be doing here? I mean, does Christ tell us to do this? In what context? What are you talking about? Very few of us will ever experience all that God intended for us to experience. Very few of us will ever... Oh, so the only way I'll be able to experience what God intended me to experience is by risking everything and going all in. Uh, chapter and verse, please. Ever lived the life that we were created to live. And make no mistake about it today, if you're here and you're breathing, and I hope that's all of you, first service, I question that sometimes. But if you're here today, you might have been a surprise to your parents. You might have been a good time in the back seat to daddy. <laughs> oh, man. But you weren't a surprise to God. You didn't catch God by surprise. God was not shocked that you were created. Matter of fact, the Bible... Okay, what does that have to do with risking everything? Okay, so I wasn't an accident. God knew I was going to exist before the foundations of the earth. Okay, this is a Rick Warren uh, category here from The Purpose Driven Life. But so what? What does this have to do with gambling and poker? The Bible talks about this dude in the Old Testament named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet. And God told Jeremiah, he said, man, in your mother's womb... That's belly for you country folks. He said, I knew you. And I set you apart because I had a plan for your life. Now, here's the problem. God has a plan for your life. God has a purpose for your life. God has a mission for your life. God has a vision for your life. But it takes you deciding that you're going to quit playing it safe. It takes you to decide that you're going to quit playing the, the game. And you're going to go all in with everything that you are. No turning back. Where is this in Scripture? Where, I'm serious. What are you talking about? That somehow I've got to go all in and that God's got a plan for me. This sounds like delusions of grandeur. And, you know, in order to discover this amazing thing that God's going to do in my life, I've got to risk everything and go all in. Can you show me where it says that in the Bible, Pastor? I know you read this, you know, or heard this from Rick Warren, but uh, this is not what the Bible teaches. Because you know the opportunities are great. The problem with us is we'd rather play it safe. And, and we live our lives knowing there has to be more to life than what we're experiencing. We live our lives knowing that there's this voidness, there's this cravingness, there's this soul craving in the side of our body that craves for something more, craves for meaning, it craves for purpose, it craves to accomplish great things. 
But we're not willing to take the risk to fill that void. See, huh? Are we supposed to all become entrepreneurs or gamblers now? What are you talking about? What what if the person listening to you is serving their neighbor by picking up trash? You know, they work for the uh, environmental uh, cleanup society or, you know, company, you know, your trash company. What if somebody there is uh, working in the kitchen at a small choke and puke? I think that's the redneck way of talking about a small restaurant or a diner. I mean... What what if God's called you to be a dog catcher? What are you talking about? How, how does risking all get me to be a dog catcher? See, what we like to do is we like to look at the problems of taking risk instead of the opportunities. We'd rather play it safe. We'd rather stay comfortable. We'd rather keep doing what we've been doing. Like I always say, you keep doing what you've been doing. You keep getting what you've been getting. And here's the deal. Many of you are miserable with what you keep getting, but you keep doing what you've been doing. Huh? Something's wrong. If you're going to live the life that God intends for you to live. Well, wait a second. What is the life that God intends for me to live? Wouldn't that be found in God's law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the the life that God intends for us to live. And the problem is that we don't do that because by nature we're sinful. He's making it sound like the problem is is that God intends for us to do something great, and the problem is we're not risking all in order to get it. These are not biblical categories that we're dealing with, Pastor Lamb. You've got to go all in. Quit looking at the problems. Quit looking at the roadblocks instead of the fulfillment of having peace to know you're in the middle of God's will and you're doing what you were born to do. Quit looking at the negative side of risk. And oh, by the way, when you take a risk, there's sometimes that negative things happen. And look at the positive things that could happen, the life-changing things that could happen. All right, we're going to pause there for a second, and uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break. If you would like to email me and explain to me how this is Christian preaching that we're listening to here, or would like to respond to anything that you've heard earlier in the program, you can do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Can you uh, provide me some Bible verses that talk about going all in, risking all, and somehow, if I, in order to do what God has called me to do, I've got to risk everything? Anyone? Anyone? Have any idea where that is in the Bible? Anywhere? Talk back, fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, 
The mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. Yeehaw! Let's go all in! We can learn so much about God from poker. I have no idea where this guy's getting this stuff. <laughs> Alright, we're in the middle of a sermon review by Gary Lamb from Revolution Church in Canton, Georgia, and the name of the sermon is All In Living, and so far we're learning that uh, God wants us to, um, well, how do I put this, uh, wants us to achieve something special in our lives, and the only way we can do that is if we go all in and risk it all. Um, so far, not much Bible here. So uh, we'll continue with Gary Lamb's sermon here. Let me... Man, this is just crazy stuff. All right, so here's uh, Gary Lamb again from uh, Revolution Church in Canton, Georgia, as we listen to uh, why we need to risk everything in order to experience the plan that God has for us. Look at the positive things that could happen, the life-changing things that could happen. If you're ever going to live a life that God created for you to live, you're going to have to be willing to take some risk along the way. You've got to be willing to lose it all to gain it all. History is what it is today because people are willing to look past what others would see as problems. And instead, they don't see problems. They see opportunities. And in the process, they've changed the course of history. History is what it is today because some people said, you know what? I'm willing to go all in with my life. And there's some of you here today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm already talking. We've already struck a nerve with you. You think I've been eavesdropping in your conversations? Uh, well, that might be so for some people, but I don't think you've been eavesdropping on the scripture and you're not really telling me what the Bible teaches. Just a little note there, Pastor Gary Lamb. Because God's been telling you to do something and you ain't got the guts to do it. See, we live life in half-ass mode. <laughs> okay, uh, half-ass crap and suck. Okay. Yeah, I, I half-ass, I said that. If that offends you, then you're probably in for a long morning. Because there's no other way to put it than that's the way that we live. Someone told me this last week, I said, I cringe every time you say things like that. I said, Good. I think it's the Holy Ghost slapping you upside your head with a two-by-four. Oh, my goodness. Th th this guy sounds like something from, uh, you know, you know you're a redneck. You know, the, what's that comedian? 
Oh, man. So this looks like from the Blue Collar Comedy Tour. This guy has the, the, the social graces of Larry the Cable Guy. This is Larry the Cable Guy as a pastor. Or it could just be I shouldn't be saying it. I don't know. I ain't really balanced that out. Yet. Yeah, you shouldn't be saying it. Yeah. <laughs> History is what it is today because people took risks. They weren't, they weren't willing to go through life doing things halfway. October 31st, 1517, a monk named Martin Luther walked to the castle church of Wittenberg, Germany. He took out a piece of paper and he knelt to the front door of that church, the Catholic church. It's become known as his 95 Thesis, and he rebuked the church for what he thought was improper actions, one of those things being the selling of forgiveness of sins. He was put on trial. He was excommunicated from the church. He was labeled a heretic. But that one act, that one act of risk ignited the Reformation and we're here today doing church the way we do it because of a risk that he took. No, uh, no, 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 no. Um, if Martin Luther were alive today, Pastor Gary Lamb, he would have much to say against uh, the way you do church because the way you're doing church right now isn't church. You're not actually telling me what God's word says. You have no concept of what law and gospel is. You're not teaching me about Christ and him crucified for our sins. Instead, you're teaching me about risk taking. And what Martin Luther did, you know, regarding the 95 theses, he didn't really intend to take a risk. He just was incensed by what was going on regarding the selling of indulgences and, and did the normal thing. He wanted to have an academic discussion and debate regarding the topic. And he posted his theses as a debate topic and didn't try to risk everything the way he did. Now, later in life, you know, he, you know, later on as the Reformation took, you know, really took hold, Martin Luther's life was definitely at risk. But what did he go, what did he, was he willing to go to the mat for? What was he willing to lay down his life for? That's the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, not, n not the gospel of risk taking. So, um, sorry, um, Pastor Larry the Cable Guy, uh, bringing up Martin Luther here, I, as a Lutheran, I'm actually offended. Hundreds of years ago, April 18th, 1945, a factory owner named Oscar Schindler, very wealthy man, he listed down 1,097 names, almost 1,100 names, 297 women, 800 men, Jewish people that he wanted to rescue from Nazi concentration camps. He spent every penny of everything that he was to buy their freedom. When people were asking him, why are you doing that? He said, because I believe it's what God's called me to do. He was willing to take a risk. And you know what he did? He ruined his life. He became financially broke. He lost his company. He became a, an outsider. People ridiculed him. People criticized him. He died broke. But because he took a risk and gave everything he had to save about 1,100 people a half century ago. Today they say there's 6,000 descendants of those 1,100 people. And those people, of those 6,000, some of them are, are government officials. Some of them are CEOs of large companies. Some of them brought great world change to humanity efforts. He literally changed the face of the earth, the chase, face of the world. Why? Because he said, I'm all in with everything that I am. He said, I'm willing to take a risk and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to bring about change. December 1st, 1951, a seamstress named Rosa Parks got on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Law required black passengers to give up their seat for white passengers. She refused to do it. You know, Gary, um, 
Listen, um, these are very inspiring stories, and, and we acknowledge the great things that Oscar Schindler did, that Rosa Parks did, uh, but uh, you're a pastor. Shouldn't you be opening God's Word and telling us what God's Word teaches? These aren't biblical categories that you're operating in here. This is pretty much a motivational speech delivered by Larry the Cable Guy. She lost her job. She was thrown in prison. She was ridiculed. She was mocked every time she went out in public. But that one act of risk, that one act of going in, inspired a citywide boycott in a court battle. Within two years, bus segregation was ruled unconstitutional. Why? Because one person decided, life's too short to hoard my chips. Life's too short to play it safe. We're giving one life here, and what I'm going to do in my life is I'm going to go all in. And she made that decision and changed the face of America. No one has ever made a difference in the world without being willing to take a risk. Life is full of risk. The day I proposed to my wife was a risk. For me, not her. Uh, so you proposing to your wife is uh, the same thing as what Rosa Parks did and what Oscar Schindler did, right? She gained everything. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she, she called it the worst day of her life. Hmm. A lot of you don't know the story. The night I was going to propose to the end, she was in a real bad car wreck. She, had to, she was in the hospital for months. Had to learn to walk again, talk again, everything. I mean, she was in bad shape in a coma for a couple of days. So far, our verse count, we've got one verse out of context, and, uh, and Jesus hasn't made an appearance yet in uh, this motivational speech by Larry the Cable Guy. And um, no one would ever leave the freaking hospital room where I could propose. I'm ready to slap the ring on her finger. And so finally, everybody leaves the room. It's been like 10, 11 days since the wreck. She's still in the hospital. I get down on one knee, and there's no one in the room. and I'm not, I couldn't make this up if I tried. The minute I got down on one knee, the nurse comes in. I guess she doesn't see me. She walks right to Deanna, shoots morphine in her arm. And my wife says that's why she agreed to marry me. She was on drugs. She's a big encourager. It was a risk because she could have said no. I didn't know how to be a husband. We couldn't afford to be married. The day we had children was a risk. I never had kids before. Never knew how much work they were. I can't wait for Tim and Courtney. <laughs> To have that first child. So, uh, let's see, risk-taking examples so far. Martin Luther, Oscar Schindler, Rosa Parks, him proposing, and uh, him having kids. Okay, that's quite a broad spectrum of changing the world. Lincoln Jagger, that is a freaking rock star name. Lincoln Jagger, man, you better be able to rip a guitar or be able to cut somebody. Knowing Tim, he'll be able to do both. Hey, it's Jagger. Wow! He named his kid Lincoln Jagger? Me and Tim were talking the other day about Jagger. He said, I wonder what kind of life he's going to live. He said, amazing things. God's already got a plan for his life. I said, that's true. But I hope it includes repenting of his sins, because he's a sinner by nature, and trusting in Christ on a daily basis. Denying himself and taking up his cross daily. I hope... I hope that is part of the purpose for Lincoln Jagger that you'll teach him, Pastor Lamb. But somehow I just don't think you're operating in those categories. But here's the deal. Jagger will come up one day and he'll have to make the decision. Am I going to go all in my life and do what I was created to do? Or am I going to do like so many different people? Am I going to play it safe? 
The day we sold everything we had, quit our job at a large church, went and borrowed $25,000, moved to a city where we didn't know anybody, and started a church for unchurched people. That's real smart. That's a great business plan. Yeah, well, see, that's the thing. Um, there's no, thing, no such thing as a church for unchurched people because the church is those who are called out the ecclesia, those who've been given faith in Christ. And what, is, what do those who have been called out do? They feast on God's word, the sacraments, they pray and experience fellowship together. Unchurched people, you can't make a church out of them because they're not, they don't have faith. And apparently you're not really devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching here. Not sure where you're getting some of this material, but boy, I'm sure glad that you uh, took a risk and proposed to your wife and took a risk and had children and took a risk and started a church for unchurched people. I told you before, that's like starting a steakhouse for vegetarians. <laughs> hey, what are you doing starting a church for those that don't go to church? It was a huge risk. Life is full of risk, yet so many of us miss out on life because we won't take them. Uh-huh. Today we're going to talk about a very small verse in the Bible. I changed my whole sermon Friday. We're going to go in a totally different direction. If any of you know me, I'm not very spiritual enough for God to work in me like that, but he broke through all that, and I was like, crap. Oh, man. Yeah, Larry the Cable Guy is the right analogy here. Guess I better do it. Get her done. I'm going to talk to you today about a very little verse in the Old Testament. A verse in the Old Testament. We're going to read a verse from the Old Testament. I doubt anybody here has ever... Acknowledge the verse. It's not about one of the great Bible characters that they teach in Sunday school with the cheesy little flannel graph. You know, it's not about it's not a verse about some deep doctrinal issue. (laughs) But it's about one of the baddest dudes in the Bible. Dude, baddest dudes of the Bible. Get her done. It's about one of the greatest risk takers ever. And you'll find it in Second Samuel. Mm. Yeah, that you can flip over there. If not, we'll throw it up on the screen here in a minute. Okay, just so you know, he got this from Mark Batterson, another one of those purpose-driven guys. Um, he's got a website, chasethelion.com. This is where this is coming from. Let me give you a little background. Everybody remembers David, David and Goliath. David threw a rock, hit Goliath, killed him. Little shepherd boy, you've sung about him. If you didn't grow up in church, you still know about David and Goliath. That little kid, David, grew up to be the king of Israel. And he was the king. He had, he had a, a group around him, 30 men. They were called his mighty men. I only have one mighty man that follows me around, he's, but he's carrying a gun, so I feel pretty confident about that on Sundays. But David was so big time, he had to have 30 of them jokers around him. And they were bad dudes. <laughs> matter of fact, the Bible talks about just how awesome they were. Man, they were the baddest of the bad, tough guys, warriors. They did great things. And they, they, they'd given their life for David. They, they decided they were going to protect David. They were going to follow David in. When David took the crown, his mighty men were around him. And the guy we're going to talk about today is Benaiah. He was the leader of those 30 men. So as close as those 30 men were to him, his 30 bodyguards, Benaiah was the leader of those men, was even closer to David. If you go back and read a little bit farther in the Bible, you'll see after David passed away, his son, Solomon, becomes the king. And if you were to read just this, Benaiah... Not only became one of his protectors, he became commander-in-chief of the army. Israeli army, he became the most powerful man next to the king in Israel. He was a a very well-to-do man. 
very known in the community. He was an impressive man, but, but I think more impressive than what he became is how he became that person. He didn't become that person by playing it safe. He became that person by taking some risk. How about trusting in Christ? You know, even the guys in the Old Testament believed in Christ because they believed in the Lord because Jesus is God in human flesh. How about his faith in God? You know, does that play into any of this? Did God actually do anything here or are we just focusing on this guy? Because remember, Scripture is about Christ, all of it, all of it, including the story of Benaiah. Well, the Bible says in 2 Samuel 23, verse 20, Benaiah, son of Jehoadad, was a valiant fighter from Cabazel. Let me break that down for you people <laughs> in a way that you understand it. Benny, Benny. son of Joe, was a valiant fighter from K-Town. Uh, you have got to be kidding me. All right. He was a, he's a bad dude. And he performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. Moab was a great fighting nation. He took two of the men, two on one, and he took them down. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and he killed a lion. Hmm. He wasn't protecting himself. He's just walking along, looks down the pit. It's snowing outside. He had his sandals on, his little robe on. He's cold. He's like, oh, there's a lion down there. Well, he's 500 pounds. It can leap 30 feet and it hadn't leaped out of the pit, so it must have been the deeper pit than at least 30 feet. He crushed me with his mouth. I'm going to jump down that pit and kick its tail. That makes a lot of sense. You're, you're kidding me, right? This is the takeaway? This is proof that God wants us to be risk takers? And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Huge Egyptians. The large Egyptians back in the day were between seven and a half, eight feet tall. This dude ready to whoop his tail. All the, although the Egyptian had a spear in his own hand... Benaniah went against him with a club. Now, I'd be glad if I had a club. But if the dude's eight foot tall and he's got a spear and it's got a point that can kill me, he's got a longer reach than me, I'm not too confident about the club. All right? If i got to take Gladiator with a spear or Fred Flintstone with his club, I'm taking freaking Gladiator any day. All the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaniah went against him with a club. And he snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand, and he killed him with his own spear. And I was a bad dude. Kind of reminds me of myself a little bit. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Who are we preaching about here, Pastor? Oh, you're preaching about yourself. Where's Jesus Christ in all of this? Not really. I would have been hiding from the Moab men running from the line, and begging the Egyptian with a spear not to kill me. This dude had an impressive resume. And I, I kind of believe that David, one day, he's flipping through the resumes, and he's doing his things like, I've got to find me a bodyguard. And he's going, he says, oh, this guy, he's well-educated, that's nice. And, oh, this guy's got good manners, that's nice. And, oh, this guy comes from a long line, that's nice. And he's just, which one's right? All of a sudden, he sees this dude's resume, and it says, went down in a pit on a snowy day, and he killed a lion. I believe David thought to himself, that's the person that needs to be protecting me. If someone is so stupid that they're going to jump down into a pit on a snowy day and kill a lion, that's the kind of person I want defending me. You see, 
But Nia went on to do great things and become a great person, but he became who he was because he was willing to take a risk along the way. What most of us would have seen as a problem, a lion, he saw as an opportunity. I'm walking along one day and I see a lion. I assume they're going to tell you to do like you would with a bear, stand still. That ain't happening. I'm going to probably crap in my pants, first of all. Uh, believe me, I know it's bad. Stay tuned, it gets worse. I'm just being honest with you. And second of all, I'm going to cry and scream. And third of all, I'm going to run like I have never ran in my life. But if I'm walking along and I'm walking along down, I look down at the pit and there's a lion. I'm like, huh, look at that lion down there. I'm still going to run. Even though the lion can't get to me, supposedly, it's snowing, the hill's all slick, he's down there, can't jump out. I, I got a dumb question. If this sermon's all about taking risks, then shouldn't you be telling us how, well, I might be freaked out, but I, if it was me, I've got to take risks because that's what God wants me to do. <sighs> I'm still such a wuss, I'm running from the lion. Benaiah's walking along. He looks down the pit, sees a lion. He jumps down in the pit with a lion and kills the lion. Good Lord. Benaiah knew that this could be his opportunity to do something great. Maybe he was bored. It doesn't... Instead of seeing a problem, he saw an opportunity. And the problem with us, the reason we don't do great things, the reason we don't go all in with our life is because we're too busy looking at the problems instead of the opportunities. Really? And that's what Christ came to teach us to do was to uh, take our problems and view them as opportunities. Think like an entrepreneur. Jump in and change the world. Because Ben and I killed a lion on a snowy day. We need to take risks and risk it all and see problems as opportunities. Does anyone think that's a little bit of a stretch? I mean, I do. But believe me, this sermon actually gets worse. Stay tuned. And here's the deal. Everybody here has a plan. God has a plan for your life. But it might involve you jumping down a pit with a lion on a snowy day. It, it might involve you taking a risk that nobody else understands. That doesn't make a lot of sense. That could be a little bit dangerous. But God says, when you do this and you take this risk, my goodness, I have an opportunity for you to do something great. <sighs> Delusions of grandeur. Preaching about yourself. Scratching, itching ears. I don't hear about my sins. I don't hear about Christ's rescue. I don't hear about Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Why are you... What is this motivational speech that you're giving? How is this even biblical? I can't help but think in a crowd this large today, there's some people who need to take a risk. Uh, and you already know who you are today. Maybe God is speaking to you and you need to take a risk. You listening to Fighting for the Faith right now, maybe God is talking to you and you need to take a risk. Uh. You know, God's called you to do something. God has set you apart. God's told you to step out on faith. And the problem is you're so scared of the risk that you won't do it. And you can't sleep at night and you can't quit thinking about it. And God's telling you to do something and it doesn't make sense to anybody else. It might not even make sense to your spouse. But you know that you know that you know God's telling you to do that. And yet you're not willing to do it. 
I'm willing to say and venture out and say the biggest risk in this church day is God's telling you, some of you, it's time to go all in with him. He, he's telling some of you today that it's time to quit playing games with him. See, we had to segment our life. And for a lot of you, Sunday morning has become a... Here comes the, uh, the use of the law unlawfully here. He's not preaching it to convict you of your sins. He's preaching it in a way to uh, get you to try harder, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do better. La, 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 la. A segmented part of your life and you come here and you go through the motions and you do your thing and you leave here unchanged. Not applying anything to your life. Because you're not really preaching the Bible, by the way, Pastor. And you go through your week, come back here again, why? Because what you're supposed to do. You enjoy the music. Think the preacher's so good looking. Enjoy the okay, probably not that last thing, but you enjoy the seats. And God said, It's time for you to quit playing games and go all in with me. God has a purpose, He has a mission for you. But you can't discover that. And what if, you know, I've got a, uh, I've got a poster here in, in, my, uh, in my office that says, Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. That's from the uh, Despair.com series. Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. So maybe God does have a purpose in your life. And what if your purpose is really not all that great? What if your purpose is just to show people what not to do? <sighs> Without stepping out of your comfort zone and deciding and make no mistake about it, doing something great is a choice. And here's the deal. At the end of your life, you will regret the risk you didn't take. <sighs> Did you hear what I said? Are you... You know, I, I remember sermons like this when I was growing up in evangelicalism, and the, the, the general point was, uh, on your deathbed, you're going to regret all the sins that you committed. And now it's changed to this new purpose-driven version, you're going to regret the risks that you didn't take. You know, sometimes you might actually go, boy, I'm glad I didn't take that risk, because if I'd done that, I would have been financially broke. I would have been ruined. My life would have been destroyed. I, I mean... No, risk we don't just willy-nilly run into risk you have to weigh the consequences you need to weigh the benefits you need to weigh the risk risk isn't always worth it some risk is bad some risk is worth the risk and others some, this is crazy are you awake today yeah. my yeah. goodness you guys are almost becoming as dead as the first service Someone told me they went well, over aggressive. Man, I, I never seen that first service today. They are dead. I said, I know second service is a little more ratty, but you guys are not ratty. They just make some noise real quick. <laughs> My goodness. You act like we're in a Baptist church and you ain't allowed to say nothing. Listen, it's all right to get a little ratty. Just don't cuss me out or nothing because someone will shoot you if you do that in the middle of the service. <laughs> Thank you, Larry, the cable guy. At the end of your life, you will regret the risk you didn't take. And I will laugh while he shoots you. Look what Mark Twain said. 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the thing you didn't do than the ones you did do. Well, that's great. Is Mark Twain uh, a biblical author? Is he one of the apostles? So throw off the bowline. Sail away from the safe harbor. Catch the trade wind in your sails. Explore, dream, and discover. 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the thing you didn't do the ones you did do. Now, listen very carefully to his uh, analogy here. This is the fun part of the sermon. I know you guys have been hanging in with me up to this point. It gets worse. Stay, just listen carefully to... 
The next analogy or sermon illustration here. Um, this is crazy. Mark Twain understood the difference between the regrets of action and the regrets of inaction. Regrets of action are regretting decisions that you did make. Regretting things that you chose to do. Regrets of inaction are regretting things that you didn't do. Experts say at the end of your life, only 14% of people will regret, excuse me, 16% of people, only 16% of people will regret the actions that they made. Yes, some of them failed. Some of them went wrong. Some of them literally ruined people. But only 16 people will regret the actions they did. Why? Because at least they tried something. At least they stepped out and tried to accomplish something. But 84% of people at the end of their life will live with the regret of inaction. Knowing that they should have done something. Knowing that it could have went wrong, but they still didn't step out. And they lived their whole lives wondering, what if? Could my life be different today if I had just done this? At the end of your life, you'll regret the risk you didn't take. Here it comes. Stay tuned. It's coming right now. At the end of your life, the biggest regrets you'll have are not the things you did wrong. It'll be the things you could have, should have, and would have done that will haunt you in your sleep. That's what it is. Not taking a risk literally haunts us. It leads us asking, what ifs? We, we live our life wondering, what if I'd have jumped down in that pit on that snowy day and I'd have grabbed that lion and I'd have killed it? Not trying to leave us wondering how our lives would have been different if we'd have just seized the moment that was before us. I have so many regrets in my life. Here it comes. <laughs> Stay home, man. And the large majority of them are from things I didn't do as opposed to things I did do. At 23 years old, I got saved when I was 21 years old. I entered into a relationship with Christ. At 23 years old, my wife and I put our house up for sale on a Saturday. It sold on a Monday. We moved the next Thursday to Ames, Iowa, clear across the country in the middle of nowhere. Didn't know any, to start a church. I had never read a book on starting a church. I never knew anybody that had started a church. I had never met anybody at church. I had never heard of anybody starting a church. I just saw all churches existed. They were just there when God created the world. He created some old brick buildings that looked tacky. Threw a gravel parking lot out there for some of them. Put all the same stained glass in every one of them and threw a steeple on them. That's why I thought churches got started. We moved to Iowa and we started a church. And the ch Two years after he becomes a Christian, he goes out and starts a church and readily admits he doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, boy. And the church grew and it, I mean, it actually doing great today. The best thing that ever happened at church was that we left it. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, you're preaching truth there, Pastor. Because they have really grown now. But you've heard me refer to that church as the church from hell. Lucifer went to that church. And her husband was there too. You know? I mean, <laughs> that lady was, she was crazy. And that church, it literally almost ruined us. It ruined my wife and I financially. We almost, our marriage almost ended in divorce. And it made me hate Christians. And everything to do with the church for a period of time. But the funny thing is I look back on that part of my life. And I don't have any regrets that I stepped out and did that. It was miserable. It was awful. But that experience, that problem, gave me the opportunity to do what I do today. And Revolution Church is what it is today. And you might not like what it is, but we're kind of fond of it because of what happened there. Ah. Oh. 
And there we go. Gratuitous plug. Wait till you hear what he regrets that he didn't do. Because this is all about taking risks and not, not getting to the end of your life and looking back and going, oh, I regret the things I didn't do. Well, what does uh, Pastor Larry, the cable guy, Gary Lamb, um, regret that he didn't do in regards to this church that he started? You don't live with the regret of action. You live with the regret of inaction. You know what my biggest regret in that church is? It's how I left that church. I wish I'd have, if I had to do over again today, this is how I'd have done it. I wish I'd have walked up in that church with a baseball bat, clocked that woman in her noggin, punched her husband in the face, took a baseball bat to those pews, burnt the organ up, set the piano on fire, showed them people that it's not about them, it's about reaching this community, showed them they can take their traditions and shove them where the sun doesn't shine, and they ought to get busy reaching the community for Christ. So, uh, he regrets that he didn't take a baseball bat to the church lady, set fire to the organ, basically burn the place down, punch somebody in the face. Huh. That's what Christ would have done. I, I'm sure of it. You know, I mean, that's what Jesus would have done. And what was he upset about? Because they were doing church for Christians. And so, you know, because he does church for people who aren't Christians, the unchurched. But he wishes that he had punched them in the face and, you know, let's yes. You don't live with the regret of action. You live with the regret of inaction. You know what my biggest regret in that church is? It's how I left that church. I wish I'd have, if I had to do over again today, this is how I'd have done it. I wish I'd have walked up in that church with a baseball bat, clocked that woman in her noggin, punched her husband in the face, took a baseball bat to those pews, burnt the organ up, set the piano on fire. Inspiring words. Inspiring words. that Just draw me closer to Christ and show me the forgiveness of sins and t teach me really what the Bible teaches to clock people in the head with a baseball bat, punch them in the face, and burn the church down. Thank you, Pastor Gary Lamb. Wow. 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 That's an example of the type of pastors that are being produced by the purpose-driven church movement. Anyway, if you would like to uh, email me and let me know how punching women in the face and clocking them with a baseball bat and burning churches down is an appropriate thing for pastors to be advocating and wishing that they had done, you can do so by emailing me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless you.